So this week begins the season of Lent. Ash Wednesday uh, starts that season for us. And there's a tiny little event that most people associate with New Orleans that happens the day before. Mardi Gras, right? Um, Sometimes we call that Fat Tuesday. That's the anglicized version of the French phrase Mardi Gras, or sometimes Shrove Tuesday. And sometimes, sometimes people, when they think of Mardi Gras, they think of wildness, right? Wild parties, wild goings on in the city of New Orleans, outlandish costumes and festivals. But if you go back into history, an interesting piece about Mardi Gras is that some of its earliest roots are connected also to generosity and to a time when it was, it had been a hard winter And in the depth of winter, when people were cold and they were hungry, there was a day on which uh, people who were experiencing these things were invited and even encouraged to seek assistance and help from their more economically advantaged neighbors. Um, And so today, uh, we might hold that in the background as we lean into this week um, and think about what it is for us to be wildly generous I want to read for us this morning a passage of Scripture that comes from um, the Torah, the first five books of the Hebrew Scriptures, where we read about the law that was handed down to the people of Israel. And uh, I'll be reading from the book of Deuteronomy, the 15th chapter. So follow along, if you will, as I read these verses for us. If there is, any, if there is among you anyone in need a member of your community in any of your towns within the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward your needy neighbor. You should rather open your hand, willingly lending enough to meet the need, whatever it may be. Be careful that you do not entertain a mean thought, thinking the seventh year, the year of remission, is near. Hold on to that. I'll come back to it in just a few minutes. And therefore, view your needy neighbor with hostility and give nothing. Your neighbor might cry to the Lord against you, and you would incur guilt. Give liberally and be ungrudging when you do so. For for on this account, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. Since there will never cease to be some in need on the earth, I therefore command you, open your hand to the poor and needy neighbor in your land. This is the word of God for the people of God, and God's people say, thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Come Holy Spirit and breathe life into the words that I speak, that they might carry a word from you into our hearts and lives on this day. Amen. So, in preaching on the subject of being generous, there are lots of possibilities that I could choose from Scripture um, to to touch on this subject. Um, In fact, some estimates suggest that there are more than 2,000 verses in the pages of the Bible related to people experiencing poverty and injustice. Um, Most of those verses have something to say about God's action on behalf of the poor and or God's call to our action and responsibility for persons who are experiencing poverty. 
And so with all of those choices, it would be fair for someone to ask, well, Steve, why did you pick these verses then? So let me tell you. Um, These verses are embedded in the Torah, which is foundational to our faith as persons who are part of the Judeo-Christian tradition. Uh, And these verses are set within a larger context of Sabbath principles. Now, when you hear the word Sabbath, there's a good chance that what comes to mind for you is a day of the week. Uh, or the idea of resting at the end of a week, or, or participating in worship on a Sunday, on the Sabbath. And we get this idea from the creation story that we read at the very beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis, where we hear the story of God creating all that is over the course of six days, and then on the seventh day, God rests. And this pattern of work and rest is then intended to be followed by human beings, that we too should experience a rhythm that incorporates both work and rest. But in the Torah, we see Sabbath principles not only showing up in that one story in Genesis, but across the pages of the Torah, And most often, not in reference to seven days, but in reference to a period of seven years. Notice that the number seven shows up again. It is a number that biblically is often used to point toward wholeness. And so there's a holistic notion to these ideas here. And in Exodus and in Deuteronomy, we read about several Sabbath principles that are meant to be implemented. Exodus 23 tells us about the Sabbath for the land, that every seventh year, farmers were supposed to let their land lay fallow and rest, and this provided rest for the land itself, as well as for laborers, and in that year when the land was left alone, it would still produce some things on its own, even while not being cultivated, and whatever it, was, whatever it produced was to be uh, free to those who were poor in the land to be able to come and take whatever they needed. Now, some historians and theologians have pointed to an idea that perhaps the way the people of Israel implemented this was to communally plan so that there was some land always laying fallow in every year. So in other words, every year, one-seventh of the land that they owned collectively was laying fallow while the other six-sevenths were being cultivated. And so every year, one-seventh was available for persons who were poor to always have something to meet their needs. So that's one place where this seven-year idea shows up of Sabbath principles. In Deuteronomy, both immediately before the verses that I read today and immediately after the verses I read, we read about other Sabbath principles. In the verses preceding ours for the day, we read about the Sabbath principle related to economics. In those times, just as in our times, people would incur debt and they would need to pay off that debt. But the Sabbath principle said that after six years of paying off debt, in the seventh year, those debts were to be released. People were to be freed from whatever debts 
they owed at that time. Imagine if that principle was in place in our current environment. In the verses immediately following our verses for today, we read about the Sabbath principle related to enslavement. One of the ways people would seek to pay off their indebtedness to someone would be to offer themselves as servant or slave to another household um, that had been generous with them. And in doing so, they would work for a period of six years. And after six years, in the seventh year, they were to be set free. And when they were set free, they were to be provided with enough so that they could go out and make a way for themselves in the world once again. Every seventh year, cycles of recovery and release and rest, all concepts that are related to Sabbath. And so these Sabbath principles that were included in the Torah were intended to set a boundary around greed and selfishness in such a way so that disparity did not continue to grow over of the longevity of time. The rich would not continue to get richer while the poor continued to get poorer, but rather the Sabbath laws served as a reset button for society. And the Sabbath laws were not the only thing that were meant to guide the way in which people approached being generous. In fact, our verses today move very intentionally beyond what Sabbath principles require and set the expectation that generosity would be a way of living, a habit, and that people would not only uphold the letter of the law, but would live into the spirit of it as well. And so you might think about it this way. If, if Sabbath laws served as the guardrails by making intentional provisions every seventh year. These verses that we read today are the road between the guardrails that we are meant to travel all the time. Truly generous hands are connected to hearts and minds that are open to the leading of God's spirit. And we see this connection in the passage today when we hear the instruction, don't be hard-hearted and don't let any wicked thought cross your mind. Hearts and minds connected to hands that give. And so practicing generosity then becomes a way to participate at any time in making rest and recovery and release possible for one's neighbors who are suffering. And practicing generosity isn't just for the benefit of our neighbors. It doesn't only make a difference for them, it also changes us. So this past week, um, two of my conversation partners for preparing for this message have been Walter Brueggemann and Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove. Um, Brueggemann is a renowned Old Testament scholar who has written a lot about the laws that we find in Torah and also their connection to the prophetic word that comes through Isaiah and Amos and others. Um, Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove is a man who for more than 20 years has been living in intentional community among the poor in an economically impoverished area in Durham, North Carolina. 
And so the merging of their two voices produces, I think, some very poignant lessons for us about how generosity matters, not only for those who receive, but also for those who give. First of all, practicing generosity moves us from a sense of autonomy, thinking that our lives exist in a bubble or in a vacuum and that what we do or don't do just affects us and not other people, moves us from that kind of orientation to life to covenantal connection with others are the words that Brueggemann uses. We are meant to be in relationship. We see this over and over again in Scripture that we are not meant to do life alone. We are meant to be in relationship. And Wilson Hartgrove talks about two important concepts uh, when it comes to this idea. And those are economic friendship and relational generosity. Our friendships happen on a number of levels. And Wilson Hartgrove points to the reality that one of those ways is in the space of economics. And that when we get to know one another's stories, and when we listen and learn from each other, one of the things that happens is that generosity can happen among neighbors that benefits all involved. I am inspired and humbled by some of the stories that I have come to know over the years uh, that relate to these two principles, some that happen and are ongoing even right now. Did you know that there is a woman in our congregation right here who's a part of Trinity who some years ago met a young man um, who was relatively new to the country, knew very little English, um, and she gave him a ride one day. And in giving giving him a ride one day, began to hear his story and learn about his hopes and his dreams um, and began to think herself about the possibilities for his life. Uh, Long story short, The connection of those two in relationship and in a newly formed friendship resulted in her paying this young man's way through college so that he could experience an entirely different life from what he could have known otherwise. Relational generosity, economic friendship. I know a business owner here in town and his son Um, who decided that they would get to know the man who was sleeping right outside the window of their business. And rather than shooing him away or calling the authorities to come and pick him up, they decided to spend some time with him and listen to his story. And one of the things they learned in hearing his story is that this was a man who years ago had been in the service. And he actually was entitled to some veterans benefits that he had never been able to access. And they helped him do that. And they, by doing that, they helped pave a way for him to begin to have some monthly income that meant that he could have a place to live, which they also helped him find some affordable housing where he could have a place to live. And they continue to have a friendship with this man who still struggles sometimes near the end of the month because even what he gets is sometimes not quite enough to get to the end of the month. But they share in this relationship and connection with this man simply because they decided to connect and listen and pay attention and care and be generous uh, rather than dismissing. 
I'm inspired, I'm inspired by Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove and the others who live at the Rootba House in Durham, North Carolina, where on any given night, they invite others from their community, some strangers, some well-known neighbors, to come and to share a meal at their table. And they also keep in their house a room that they call the Christ Room, which is set aside for them to be able to offer it to someone who needs shelter for a period of time. Now, you all may be able to guess why they call it the Christ Room. It comes from that passage in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus says, when we pay attention and respond to the needs of those who are hungry or naked or imprisoned, we have, in fact, done that for Jesus himself. And the folks at the Rootba House trust that in caring for friends and strangers in the neighborhood, they will actually encounter Jesus himself. All these ways in which they participate in making a difference. And the beautiful thing about all these exchanges is that both the giver and the receiver experience Sabbath release in the process. It's not just those who receive that recover from something or experience release. But in fact, when we are generous, we experience release and recovery from ways that sometimes we hold on to too tightly that we have been encouraged to adopt in this world. Practicing generosity moves us from autonomy to covenantal connection. It also moves us from anxiety to an experience of the abundance of God. Now, medical research has shown that generosity has positive effects on our physical and emotional well-being. There are studies that have shown that it can reduce blood pressure, reduce heart rate, improve our sense of our quality of life. Again, practicing generosity doesn't only benefit the receiver, but also benefits the giver. And on the flip side, the failure to practice generosity reveals too often a lack of trust. Wilson Hartgrove says this, the greatest obstacle to faith in our time may well be that most of us are too invested in securing our own futures to trust Jesus for the good life he wants to give us now. I got to be honest, that one stings a little bit for me. Because I think sometimes I may pay a little too much attention to, to what I want or think I need somewhere out in the future to really be responsive to what it is that Jesus is showing me right in front of me, particularly when it comes to relationships with persons that I might be able to get to know and might be able to serve in some way. Relational generosity. How often is our tight-fistedness the result of fearing that we will not get something we want or think we need for ourselves down the road? Which brings us to the last point that I'll make this morning, and that is that practicing generosity moves us from greed to the neighborly practice of sharing. You know, I, I think that very few people wake up in the morning wanting to be greedy. I just don't think that's what we naturally want to do or to be. 
I think greed seeps in quietly and unassumingly and catches us off guard. But greed catches us. And before long, it traps us in a way of living that begins to close our hands and keep us from being free and joyful and open to the possibilities that God has in mind for us. And here's the thing. It's not that opening our hands back up and just doing something with our hands will fix everything. Remember, the passage connects the hands to the heart and the head. Wilson Hargrove puts it this way, our giving is not the big deal. Hear that. Our giving is not the big deal. Sometimes people try to make the giving the big deal. Our giving is not the big deal. The big deal is how sharing with others helps us become God's beloved community together. Relational generosity is transformational for all involved. One of the things I love about this church is that you all have a wonderful history of being what I would call wildly generous. 40 plus years ago, this church decided that every week as a part of worship, there would be an offering that didn't support the ministries of the church or the budget of the church, but an offering that would go out into the world to bless others, to, to cast seeds out that can make a difference for the kingdom of God. That was radical. This church, a number of years ago, when it became apparent that another organization was no longer going to be able to offer Thanksgiving food distribution, this church said, well, we can do that. We can take that on. We can make it happen. Over a thousand families every year that this church continues to support through that Thanksgiving offering. More recently, this church said yes to making our Christmas offering every year another way to bless the community, to reach beyond ourselves and to share with others. And at least since I've been here, every time there is a disaster and we bring it to your attention, a hurricane, an earthquake, in fact, sometimes it's even before we bring it to, it to your attention, you start asking us, what can we do to help? Are we going to have an offering to help those who are suffering from this most recent tragedy? Time and time again saying yes. And one of the things that I love is that especially in recent years, uh, there's been a growing emphasis on building relationships in the process uh, so that the giving, the generosity isn't just a transaction, but it's about relationships. It's about connecting with others uh, because when we connect with others, we find that everyone has something to give uh, and we learn to love each other more deeply. This is one of the things that is so wonderful about what's happening at the Faith Mission Campus it's grounded in relationships and connection and doing life together. And so I would just say today to us as a church collectively to encourage us to stay awake, to keep paying attention, to not let history just be history, but to allow history to continue to shape and move us into the future. 
and whatever it is that God has in mind for us. And then secondly, I would say this, that this passage today, I believe, is an invitation for each of us on a personal level to consider our own journeys with generosity and to ponder the question, what might need to change in my life in order to participate more generously in the ways that bring about Sabbath renewal for our neighbors and also for ourselves. Near the end of his book about God's economy, Wilson Hartgrove says that bread has to be broken to be shared. He reminds us of the story of the feeding of the 5,000 and how it started with a little boy offering what he had and allowing Jesus to take it and bless it and break it so that then it could become bread for all who were there. And then he goes on to say this, the whole story of Scripture seems to say that God's party isn't finished until all the children are gathered around the table, breaking the bread we have, passing the pieces to one another, and living the beloved community that is communion with our Lord. My friends, may that be the vision that moves us forward, that invites us to participate more fully in bringing about the kingdom that God has in mind for this earth as it is in heaven. Thanks be to God. Amen.